So uh, we return now to the 17th chapter of the book of John, and uh, we're working our way through this book, and uh, we are going to come to the end of it one of these days. Maybe the Lord will come back before we get there. That'll be fine too. John chapter 17. Now in chapter 17, uh, we find some interesting information here. In chapters 14 through 16 of the book of John, we have the record of Jesus talking to the disciples about his father. All the way through chapter 14 to 16 is all about the father. I'm going to quote some of the things in just a moment. But then in chapter 17, we have a completely different scenario. We have Jesus talking to his father about the disciples. And uh, it's a switch. He's praying and he's talking to his father. 14 to 16, he talked about the father's house and the father's gift of the Holy Spirit. He talked about his father's love. He talked about the father's presence among them. He talked about his father's status as being greater than his. He talked about the father's supervision of the vine and the branches, which they were. And he talked about his father's purpose of fruitfulness in their lives. His father's work, he talked about through the Holy Spirit. He, he talked about his father's eagerness to answer prayers and his father's promise of companionship to the cross and beyond. So he talked to his disciples about his father. In 17, now we, as we're going to stand and read this section in just a moment, he talked to his father about his disciples. And of course, as we get to the end of the chapter, that will include us. So let's stand together. And I'm going to read this for us, but I would like you to stand this morning and let me read for you verses 6 through 19. I'm going to call on you to join me at a certain verse. And when I say that, you can join me and read. Let me begin. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them or keep through your name those you have given me that they may be one as we are. While I was in, with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now join me on 13 and read out loud down through 19. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, our Father, add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word. Magnify and glorify yourself at this hour. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you can be seated.
So Jesus talks to his father about his disciples. That's very significant because listen to a verse of scripture in Hebrews chapter three and verse one says, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, by the way, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a partaker of the heavenly calling. How many believers in the Lord Jesus do I have this morning? Just raise your hand up. All right. You are partakers of the heavenly calling. Here's what he says. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus, folks, was the apostle, the sent one from the Father, who is also our high priest. He is the representative before the Father in heaven on our behalf. Now, make sure we get this now. He is the, he, he is the high priest before God. What is the specific work of a priest? Well, a priest is one who represents God before mankind, before men, and he is one who represents men before the Father in heaven. So that's what a priest does. He's a representative. He represents God to men, and he represents men to God. The Bible says there's only one of those people who can do that. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, who is it? Christ Jesus. There's just one. There's one who can do that. Pastor Matt started us off last week, and he introduced this three-part study we're calling Listen Jesus is praying. And in the first five verses, Jesus prayed for himself. Significantly in there, he said, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. What a phrase, he finished. He didn't just cease working. Uh, I don't know that I will ever be able to say I finished everything that God has given me to do in my life. I, I'm gonna work till Jesus comes, but I don't know if I'm ever gonna finish. But Jesus finished the work. He didn't cease working. Now in the divine mind, the cross and the resurrection were already accomplished. Uh, in Revelation 13, eight, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. So Jesus, this work that he's about to do on Calvary, this is an accomplished feat in God's mind. But even in time and space, Jesus finished the work. Folks, he did more than miracles. He did more than teach. He did more than walk on water. He did more than confront the apostate temple officials. He did more than labor and prayer in Gethsemane. He went beyond the flogging. He went beyond the Via Dolorosa. He didn't stop short of Calvary. He went to the cross and there he cried. His last words from the cross were what? It is finished. He finished the work that God had given him to do. But even then it wasn't over. As promised, he arose the third day and in 40 days he ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory in heaven and he finished the work that God gave him to do. So Jesus prayed for himself and he says, all right, I've done it. Now return me to the glory. 16, 6 to 19 is the next section. What we're going to really focus on today is then after praying for himself, he prayed for his disciples to be kept and protected. Then in verses 20 to 26, we'll look at next week, he's going to pray for us and he's going to pray for us to be on mission. So briefly, let me tell you the two main issues of this section. Number one, in this prayer, Jesus first gave a report to his father. You can write that down. It's on your sheet. He gave a report to his father. And then after that, he made request of his father. He gave a report and he made some requests. We're going to look at these rather quickly this morning. The first thing he did when he gave his report is he said this, Father, I have revealed your name to them. That's verses six and seven. Father, 
To those you gave me out of this world, I have revealed your name. Well, what's in a name? Well, in the case of God, it is the sum total of his character, his attributes, and everything that he is. To know his name is to know his nature and his capability. Listen to this. Write this reference down there somewhere. Psalm 9, verse 10. Psalm 9, 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. For those who know your name, they know who you are and how you define yourself, they put their trust in you. How about this one, Psalm 20 and verse seven. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. It's his name. The name encompassed in his name is all of the character traits and attributes of God, his ability, his goodness, his love, his tenderness, his kindness, and so on. So here's what he made him know. First of all, he made the father known. In Exodus chapter three, you'll remember this. In Exodus chapter three, Moses had an encounter with God. And when he said, who, who am I gonna say to the people in, Israel, in Egypt that is sending me? And he says to them, he says to Moses, you tell them I am that I am has sent you. The great I am, Jehovah, the I am God, all right? Now we come to the New Testament and we find out that Jesus shows up and he reveals himself as what? He reveals himself in the book of John alone seven times as I am. He says, I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. That is, I'm, I'm what you need to sustain you. And then I am the light of the world. I'm not gonna leave you in darkness and not knowing how to get around. I'm gonna show you. I am the gate for the sheep. I, I'm the way that you can come in and out before the Father. I am the good shepherd. That is, I'm not gonna just abandon you. I'm gonna shepherd you. I'm gonna lead you to good pastures. I'm gonna take care of you. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm going to give you life that is life. I'm going to give you life, abundant life. I am the life. I am the way, the truth. And you see what's going on here? He said in the Old Testament, I am that I am. But when Jesus showed up and he put, he put Jehovah in skin, he said seven times, I am. And finally, I am the true vine. I am. He is the I am God. Now in doing so, he made the invisible visible and he made the unapproachable approachable. You see, no one can approach the Father in all of his glory. Listen to the word of God. The Bible says this. It says, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone dwells in immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but I am really glad that God sent his son into the world as the incarnation of himself so that we could approach God because without Jesus, nobody is coming to the father. Do you understand that? You cannot approach him. He dwells in unapproachable light. It would be a quick sizzle for us to walk into his presence. It's so important. He is the invisible God made visible in the person of Jesus Christ. He dwells in a person. John 14, 6, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus said, or the, the writer says that Jesus was the exact image, the exact icon of the Father who is in heaven. Colossians 2, 9, it says that in Jesus dwells all the fullness, the whole picture, the completeness of the Godhead dwelled in the person 
person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus came into the world and he is the full revelation of God in human form. And you are complete in him, the scriptures say. He did something else. He made the disciples know that they were the father's gift to him. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you ever received a gift on some occasion that you wish you could return? You know, I think white elephant gifts are kind of, that's what they are, aren't they? They just kind of show up, they keep circulating because you really didn't want it and so on. So gifts that you could return. I don't know about you, but it's, it's quite astonishing to me that the father looked to Jesus and says, I'm just going to give you these people as your gift. These are the ones that I've chosen. I'm going to give them to you. Well, you know, I mean, it's like a baby with a dirty diaper. I mean, we're just glad, he's glad to have us, but you know what I mean? In other words, we, we have been given how much, let me ask you a question. How much of your life really does stink up the place sometimes? time for God and you just wonder why does God have you at all? Jesus said, you have given them to me. We have been given to the father. Listen, I want to tell you something. God chose you to be his son and God chose you for his son. And he was delighted who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. He was delighted with us. John 6, 37, all the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I'll never cast out. John 6, 39, this is the will of the father who sent me that all of all he has given to me, I should lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And in our passage here, it's repeated over and over, verses 6, 9, 11, and 12. It says that we have been given, given, that the disciples were given. They are a gift that you've been given. You've been given to Jesus. Jesus loves us. Something else he did, not only did he reveal his name, write these down, I'm gonna move a little quickly now. Father, I gave them your words. That's 17, 8 and verse 14. I gave them your words. Jesus spoke only what the Father told him to speak. Jesus only did what the Father told him to do. He lived his entire life in, in his human body in submission to the will of the Father. We just mentioned the word submission today and people start shaking. But Jesus lived his whole life on earth in submission to the Father. John 6, 63 says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit, they are life. The words the very words of Jesus, what I'm saying to you, they are spirit, they are life. The word of God, every word, every jot, every tittle. This is a good reason to believe in what is called plenary or complete or full inspiration of the scripture. And that's where we get this idea that Jesus said every jot and every tittle is important. So how the disciples reacted to God's word that Jesus gave them, how did they react? Well, they received them, verse eight, and they believed that he was sent from the father. That is a perfect picture of true conversion. True conversion is to receive the word, to hear it, and then they believed the message and they believed and received the messenger and in turn they turned around and kept the word of God. All of that's right here in this passage. They kept the word. Receive the message, believe the messenger, obey his command. But when the word of God begins to take second place in our life or second place in a church's ministry, the effect will be immediate and significant. He did something else. He said, Father, he said, I revealed your name and I gave them your words. And now then, Father, I pray for them. Look at verse number nine and 10. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus is praying. He had been praying. He was praying. He prayed for Peter that his faith not fail and it didn't. He prayed all night before he chose the 12. He prayed to his father at the grave of Lazarus and had a good result. Lazarus walked out of the grave and Jesus now is praying for his disciples. But significantly, the passage says, but he is not praying for the world. 
So some people think, well, you know, Jesus gave up on the world. He wasn't worried about him anymore. No, that's not true. The very plan of the father and of the son was that he come into the world to save the lost. John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so it isn't that God was turning away from his love for the world and getting the gospel to them. But at this time, he is praying for his disciples who he is sending to the world because they need the father to help them and protect them. And he is praying for them at that time. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that they might be saved, John 3, 17. Something else, he is still reporting now. And he says, Father, I have kept them. Verse number 12, I kept them in your name. Jesus protected them according to all that God is, according to his unchanging nature, according to his faithfulness, his love and tenderness and kindness. Jesus, while he was here in his physical body on earth, safeguarded and protected, gave security to his disciples. He warned his disciples though. He said, I have been hated, you will be hated. He said, I, will, I have been persecuted, you will be persecuted. He said, they have laid traps for me to catch me in my words. They're gonna lay traps for you to catch you in your words. And then he kept them from doing things like he kept them from praying for fire to come down and destroy the Samaritans who didn't offer them a place to sleep on the way to Jerusalem. James and John said, do you want us to pray for fire to come down and consume everybody? And he said, no. He kept Peter from starting a skirmish and even a battle right there in the Garden of Gethsemane by telling him to put up his sword and then he healed Malchus' ear at that time. He kept them from false doctrine when they thought this. They thought and they asked him, they said, Lord, this man here that's blind, uh, who sinned? Did he sin in his mother's womb before he was born or did his parents do something wrong? He corrected him and he said, no, no. He said, this blindness is not because of anybody's sin but for the glory of God and not all sickness is due to sin. And he corrected their thinking. And then he said something else, and this is amazing. He's reporting still, and he says, Father, I set myself apart for their sanctification. That's a stunning verse in our passage. I want you to look at verse number 19. Look at it. It says here, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I sanctify myself. Somebody says, well, why in the world would Jesus need to? I thought he, yeah, he was perfect. He lived a sinless life. This sanctification goes to the root of the word, not the idea that he was progressively becoming more holy. That's not what was happening with Jesus. Jesus was sinless, amen? Jesus never sinned, not in word, not in action, attitude, or deed, not one thing. He never sinned. He obeyed his father in all things. He fulfilled the law. But he wasn't becoming more holy. No, no, he was setting himself apart. He was sanctified, and that's what the meaning of the word is. He was sanctified or he was dedicated to the task God had given him. He was headed to the cross. He had a particular task in mind. He did not waver. The scriptures say that his face was set like a flint toward Jerusalem on his last trip toward Jerusalem. He would not be deterred. He was headed to Calvary because he was finishing the work God had given him to do. He said, I have sanctified myself. I have set myself apart. I have not let myself get pulled this way or that. He was even talking about that when his mother asked him to turn the water into wine at that funeral, at that, at that wedding. He said, uh, he said, my hour is not yet come, but he did it. But here's the point. He didn't want, he didn't want 
to be involved in all those things. He wanted to put on a display of his power and glory and authority and then head to the cross and die for our sins. He was sanctified. Let me, let me see if I can help you see and understand this. This location up here in the front of the auditorium right here, this platform area is a sanctified location. Matter of fact, this building is sanctified. Everything about it. You see, you mean if I touch it, I'm going to be more holy? No. I mean that it is set apart for a particular thing. This building, this location, and particularly this platform is here and placed and it is set aside, dedicated to the purpose of celebration and worship of the Almighty. We are here to worship. We are here to worship our Lord and God. We are here to proclaim. We proclaim the truth. We tell the truth. We announce the truth. We sing about the truth. We hear testimonies about the truth. We give baptism. And we have baptisms and announce that the truth has worked in people's lives. This is a sanctified location. This piece of furniture that we have right here in front of me, right this, this thing right here, I, I get a hold of it and sometimes I shake it when I'm trying to make a point, but this, this pulpit right here is sanctified. You see, if I walk up there and touch that pulpit, am I going to be more holy? No, but it has a purpose. It's set apart for something. It is set apart for the purpose of holding my Bible and holding my notes and gives me something to hold on to so that, you know, I don't fall over or I get dizzy. So I've got this pulpit up here and it is sanctified, set apart. Jesus was set apart for one thing, come into the world, die for our sin, and he did it. Boy, we're not real good at being laser focused, are we, in a lot of things in our lives. This is a sanctified location. Let me just pull over and say something. To the elders and the deacons of this church, let me just say that you probably just need to keep a lasso at arm's length most of the time. Because at some point in the future, there may be somebody stand up here. Thank God, none of the people that are on scene right now. But at some point, somebody may stand up here, some guest or someone stand up and deny the virgin birth, deny the authority of scripture, deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus or deny some cardinal truth of the faith. I just want to tell you, get a hold of that lasso, throw it around them, drag them out, show them the front door and tell them never come back. Because this is a, this is a location for the truth. It's so important, the word of God. Father, I've done something else. This is the crux of the whole issue. Verse number 18, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. So Father, I have sent them into the world. There's two, the, the word sent is used two times in that verse. It is the Greek word apostolo, and it means sent. That's its root, the root word means to be sent. So we come to the major issue and the concern of this entire prayer. He is praying for their prep, for their protection. He's praying all kinds of things for them, mainly because they are going to replace him in the work. I'm not in the world. I'm going back to the Father and I'm leaving them in the world to do the work. They have been sent. God sent his son, Jesus, to be the savior of the world. And Jesus was in the world. He preached to the world. He saved some out of the world. And those he saved, he sent back to the world. So Jesus is praying for his disciples for the benefit of the whole world. Now, let me say boldly today that those who received and believe the message have now become the messengers to carry the message. They were receivers of the message. Now they're conveyors of the message. And he is sending them back into the world. They have been sent. That's two things you and I both have in common with Jesus. Jesus is the apostle, the great sent one. And we are apostles with a little a, we are the sent ones into this world. Now I'm afraid the local New Testament church in America and even around the world has been hijacked and diverted to all sorts of other causes. There are many good causes out there and there are many good works. 
But the command is to go and make disciples. And I want to tell you this morning, churches are dwindling and dying because there are too few new births in the churches. Too few people coming to faith in Christ. And the biggest reason is there are too few people that are actually telling and announcing the good news. Now, folks, we've wimped out on the Great Commission. We have wimped out on the Great Commandment and the Great Commission in our day and age. We want to do everything under the sun except the one thing, the focused, the actual laser-focused thing that God told us to do. And that is, is to get beyond our zip lips and get beyond our cowardice and our being afraid and to actually talk to the world around us about Jesus. Now then... That's what he talked to as a report. Now, this is the main thing. He's got request that he's going to make to his father in verses 7 or 17, 11, 13, and 15 to 17. He makes specific requests for them to be enabled to do it. He previews the future. He says, they're going to need help. And father, here's how I would like you to help them. And the first thing he said was, father, make them one or father, unify them, make them one. Now, this morning, I'm not an ecumenical sort of a preacher. I'm not willing to sacrifice biblical truth for the sake of unity. I have no reason today to link arms with any religionist who denies the virgin birth, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily ascension of Jesus, the doctrine of the Trinity, a literal return of Jesus in a bodily form to earth from heaven. I, got, I have no reason to link arms with those people and there are many other cardinal doctrines, but as Bible believers who are united in the gospel, uh, Bible believers are divided way too much and the impact because of the division is dilution. We, we have diluted the impact of the gospel because of so much division. Our world is confused by a Christianity that is always fighting over methods and styles and music and secondary and tertiary issues that don't have anything to do with the gospel. And so here's what Jesus prayed. Father, they're going to want to bicker and they're going to want to argue and they're going to want to, they've already started. They want to know who's going to be the greatest, who gets to sit on my right hand, who gets to sit on my, they're already, Lord, would you just unite them? Folks, I just want to tell you something. Little drops of water and little grains of sand make the mighty ocean and the pleasant land. I want to tell you something this morning. Raindrops don't seem like much until they all get together and they become a flood. Snowflakes don't seem like much until there's a bunch of them. They all get together. And it's when they get united. And I'm, te I'm telling you, brethren, we must unite. <clears throat> we must unite as believers here in our congregation, and we must unite with other believers who believe the word of God. And boy, we've got to unite and we've got to stop bickering. And we've got to start talking about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that there's a heaven to gain and there's a hell to shun. And we've got to preach the truth of the gospel or we're going to be in terrible, terrible shape. Father, unify them, unify them. Oh, the unity can have such a great impact. Infighting within a local church and competition between local churches gives glee to the devil and it dilutes our impact. And they will know us by our love, Jesus said. And even if we don't love each other, why would the world love, even care to hear our message? The second thing he prayed, he says, Father, I want you to please fill them with my joy. Fill them with my joy. You know, the truth is a whole lot of Christians live as if, as if this becoming a Christian thing was the worst thing ever happened to them because if, I mean, they may be happy in their heart, but they have not notified their face and we're running around with a big scowl and frown on our face all the time and we're just not happy. It's as if many Christians have, you know, been born and raised, been weaned on a dill pickle or something. 
I mean, it's just sad, not happy. They're not thrilled about what God has done in their life. And so we act, we act like God has taken the enjoyment out of our life. It seems that, get this now, we just heard a testimony this morning. It seems that people saved from the deepest depths of sin were drugs, alcohol, vices, crime, imprisonment, and the like, that they're the happy ones. But people who were raised in church and came to know Christ early, they act like they don't even have a testimony to share. Well, I got something to say to you. You've got to be kidding. Listen to me. Everyone is born under the wrath of God. Every single person. This is so crucial to the understanding of the gospel. A person who's down and out and drunk and on dope and hasn't got a job and living on the street is no more spiritually lost than a Sunday school boy that never misses, who has never been regenerated in his heart and never understood that he's lost. We are all, both of us, every one of us, we're under the wrath of God from the day we're born. We, listen, this is a world in which people without Christ are headed to hell. Pastor Phil, this is the 21st century. We do not preach. Listen, I'm going to preach the Bible as it is. I don't care what century it is. And the Bible talks about a, a literal hell and it talks about a literal heaven. Listen, let me just say this to you. If somebody set fire to the houses on your street and they're burning one right after another and they're coming down and it's racing, you would jump ahead and go to those houses, beat on the door. You lose all your dignity. You do anything to wake those people up, get them out. There's a fire coming. You've got to get out. There's a fire coming, folks. Hell is real. And people without Christ are under the wrath of God, whether they're Sunday school kids, whether they're rich, whether they're famous, or whether they're infamous and they're in jail. It's the same gospel for all because we're under the wrath of God. He said, well, I, I, I just don't know. Listen, every person, he said, what is the wrath of God? Take a real good look at the cross and what happened to Jesus there and you'll understand what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God was exercised on Jesus in order that you and I could go free. Father, fill them with my joy. You having a hard time being happy? Then spend more time at the cross and think about what Jesus has set you free from, what Jesus did on your behalf and that he, he, he died in your place. Oh, it is so important. The Bible says it over and over that your joy may be full. Chapter 15, verse 11, 16, verse 24. And then again here in our passage, 1 John 1, 4, 2 John chapter to verse 12. Uh, we are supposed to be the people with joy. Now, I don't mean we're giggling all the time. What I mean is, is I know life's tough and rough and all those things, but there is a, there is a settled, constant knowledge that Jesus lives in us. We have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the person of Christ and we have been forgiven and heaven is our home. If you don't have the joy of your salvation anymore, go to the cross and see what the wrath of God looks like and recognize that God has not appointed you to wrath but unto salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. I just have one question. Are you glad you're saved today? Are you glad that Jesus took your place? Are you glad that the wrath of God is not coming to you Father, protect them. That's the next thing, 17, 15 to 16. He says, I'm going out of the world, but they're staying here. They're going to be attacked. They're going to be discouraged. They're going to be sidetracked. 
The devil's going to put a target on them, Father. I have sent them just like you sent me. He didn't ask for or give a promise that there would be no trials or trouble. He promised that he'd be with us in it. He would keep us in and through them. Jesus did not ask for deliverance from this world. He didn't say send a fleet of planes or boats to whisk us away. That's not what he said. Brothers and sisters, I just want to say this to you right here, right now, this day and age in which we're living, this is our time, this time. Sometimes we like to say, oh, I wish we could go back and live in the 50s. Or, oh, I wish we could just make things different in the future. Well, I'm just going to tell you, this is our time. This here, right now, these days in which we're living, this is our time. This is our task. This is our mission field. I mean, with all of the craziness and redefinition of marriage and gender and all those things and the cultural challenges that any, any one of us could mention this morning, we are sent here. This is our mission field. This is our time. And crickets. This is our world. This is our mission field. We have been sent, we say it in the words of Esther, for such a time as this is our time. This is our mission field. We can't change our mission field. This is it. We live here. These are the people to whom we are to give the light of the gospel. We can't hide or put the gospel under a basket or put it under the bed as it says in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to shine the light now as the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so send I you. Listen to the beloved apostle in 2 Corinthians 5, 15. He says, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who should live no longer live for themselves. Oh, do we need to hear? that, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for them and rose again, living for Jesus, living no longer for themselves, mean among other things, living as those who are available for the service of the gospel. And to be a missionary or to be a disciple for a believer is to be a missionary. To be a disciple is to be a missionary. And finally, Father, sanctify them. Verse number 17, look at that verse enormously huge. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Separate them unto yourself, Father. Let them live on purpose. Now, in everyone's case, there's an initial sanctification where we at salvation are set apart from the world and are set into the family of God. We're his children headed to heaven. That's initial sanctification, a setting apart. But then there is progressive sanctification. That is a process where more and more we become like Jesus Christ because of our exposure to the word and more and more capable and useful to his purpose. So pastor, how does it happen? It happens by constant exposure to the word of God. Look at verse 17, sanctify them by, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You know, God has been wonderful in giving us three editions, three editions of his word. His word is truth. That's John 17, 17. So this written word is his truth. And then his son is truth. That's John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. And then his spirit is the spirit of truth. That's 1 John 5, 6. So we got a triple edition of the word of God. The word of God living in us in the in form of the Holy Spirit. The word of God set before us on a book. And the word of God who came into the world and set an example, died on the cross, rose and went back to heaven. It's the word of God. We have a triple edition of the word 
of God. We need all three if we're going to experience true sanctification. A sanctification that touches every part of our inner person. With our mind, we learn God's truth through his word. With our heart, we love God's truth because we love his son. And with our will, we yield to the spirit of God and we live in his truth every single day. So Jesus is praying and I finish with this and time's up. Jesus is praying. He's praying for us. He's praying for us to be unified. He's praying for the disciples to be joyful. He's praying for the disciples to be safe and safeguarded for the purpose. And he is praying for us to be sanctified. But the big question is why? Why? Well, look at verse number 18. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. He has sent us into the world, this world, this nasty dog-eat-dog, vile, sinful, rebellious world. We're not to be part of this world system. What is that, Pastor? Well, we're not part of the world in that we don't want to be part of the world that is organized and functioning as if God doesn't exist. But we are here to live, to minister, and to gospelize. I'll just coin a new word this morning. We're gospelizing. We're here to tell people the good news, both through our actions and through our words. So to do so, you need to be sanctified, set apart for the task. That means as you yield to the word of God, I'm going to finish with a couple of statements here. We're going to go home. I want you to write this on the fly leaf of your Bible. Here's a couple of statements that I think you need to carry with you from here on. I don't always tell you this, but here's something I think you need to write down. D.L. Moody said this. D.L. Moody said, sin will keep you from the Bible or the Bible will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from the Bible or the Bible will keep you from sin. I got my own version. Let me give it to you. What you do with God's word will determine what God does with you. What you do with God's word will determine what God does with you. That applies to believers and unbelievers. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to him by faith? Have you trusted him and said, I I, I recognize my sin. I'm separated from you. I understand that my sin has me under the wrath of God, but you took took that wrath on the cross. You died in my place. I believe in you that you died, were buried and rose again, and you have trusted in him. And you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. You have, as it were, stepped inside the doorway of new life, but that's enough for you. You haven't given yourself to the word of God. You haven't given yourself to the daily reading and studying and and memorizing and letting the word of God dwelling you richly in all glory and dwelling you richly with all knowledge and with all power. You haven't let the word of God work on you, make you a different person. I just want to tell you something. What you do with God's word will determine what God is able to do with you. You want to be a wonderful witness for the Lord? You want to be available for him and for his cause? Then make much of the word of God. Make much of its teaching, make much of its preaching, make, just make a whole lot about the word of God. What you do with God's word will determine what God is able to do with you. Now let's move to another group. Let's talk about the people who are unbelievers and you hear the word of God. The wages of sin is death. Death, when it is finished, turns us off into hell and we're separated from God forever. 
and that we are all sinners and we sin from birth. We sinned at birth. We were born in sin. We practice sin. We prefer sin. We live in sin. We are condemned by our sin. We are under the wrath of God. We hear it. <laughs> That's interesting. We hear it with our mind, but with our deciding factor in our hearts. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made. In the but in our hearts, we don't really want it. We've never said, oh, I'm lost. I want Jesus. I want to be saved. Head knowledge will never get you to heaven. A total desire from the inner being, desiring Jesus and his salvation will save you. What you do with God's word will determine what God does with you. Father, please add your blessing, add your conviction, add your motivation to the preaching and teaching of your word. Bring us back next week to hear the last thing you prayed in this section. Father, I just thank you so much for those that are here this morning and I pray for every believer that's here this morning that this whole idea of serving you would not be just wrapped up in a place they come on a Sunday and that's it. But I pray, Father, that it would be walking with you daily. And I pray for that soul here this morning that has never come to grips with their lostness. They've never understood that they're under the wrath of God and they've never seen that the wrath of God was poured out on your son Jesus on the cross so that they could go free. I pray that you would draw people to yourself this morning. Save the soul that's nearest hell today. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.